Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that the foolishness of preaching is what you have ordained for the benefit of your people, your church, for people who are not yet a part of the church. They need to hear your truth. So, Lord, I pray that your truth would be clear. And whatever I say, Lord, is not so much as important as what your word says. But I pray, Lord, we might gain insight into your word, that we might be filled with wonder, amazement, love, and praise. For you are God in all that you have given to us in the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. May you be the focus of what we learn in our time together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It is such a big difference in one's experience when going through a forest, if you're walking through the forest floor and looking up at the trees, versus the approach of going into a forest and looking at all the trees from over top of them. And recently when we were touring Ecuador, uh, Catherine and Joyce and I took in a very amazing zip line experience where we went from one hilltop to another hilltop and strapped in on this little uh, gizmo. We were in this thing. We're just going flying over the trees. It was incredible, incredible experience looking down, passing over the tops of trees, reaching out almost you could touch the leaves. You're going over the treetops. You're up with the birds looking down, entirely different perspective in looking over top of a forest, as opposed to sometimes our experience, most of the time, right, our experience is walking and looking up and looking at individual trees. Now, I begin with that metaphor this morning because some people, and I think many of us, when it comes to reading the Bible, we only see what we see as trees, individual trees. We have a hard time seeing what is the big forest look like here. And I understand why that is, because it's not surprising that you look at the Bible. The Bible is one book, but it is made up of 66 books within the one book. And I can understand why many people would have a difficult time somehow summarizing the primary theme what, what is the, the main storyline of the Bible? Sometimes it doesn't seem as obvious as we would want it to be. If you've never made your way through the entire Bible, 
And if you've ever struggled to understand the big picture that the Bible presents, I want to invite you to look carefully into these verses in Galatians chapter 4, because I believe they have a tremendous amount of summary and summarizing contained in these brief verses. There's a lot of condensing that have been put into, packed into these verses, taking a large amount of biblical content and pushing them together into sort of a, a consolidated a summarization of the God's program of redemption. We are provided, in a sense, a panoramic view. It's like we're getting now on a zip line and we're looking at the big picture of what is God doing and what has he done in the program of his amazing redemptive work by grace. So this text, I would suggest to you then, can be fall into three sections, and I would suggest that each of the sections can be built around a contribution that is made by one of the persons of the Godhead to this larger uh, program of redemption in biblical history. First of all, you have God the Father. It talks about here in the text, um, God sent forth his Son, verse 4. So we have God the Father who develops the plan of redemption. Then you have God the Son who makes provision necessary for that redemption. He is providing something that he uniquely brings to help make that redemption um, provided for. And then God the Spirit, he has his ongoing presence providing assurance of adoption through redemption. Now these are just the main points I'm going to take. I'll repeat them and we'll go through this text and try to understand why this is such a great summary of so much larger content in the Bible. First of all, then, God the Father's plan. What's his plan? Well, he's putting in motion a progress of redemption. The Bible is not a collection of just random, disconnected events and people. The narrative of redemption moves from a beginning point to an end point. Before time began, the triune God enjoyed unending, uninterrupted love and fellowship and communion between the members of the Godhead. And God made the world and all that is in the world for his own glory and for his own pleasure. And when God's perfect world was corrupted by sin, God then followed his plan, which he was all prepared for, He followed his plan to magnify his grace by redeeming a people for his own glory and his own benefit. And in keeping with his plan to magnify his grace, God, we read, early on in biblical history, chose to make a covenant with a gentleman who didn't stand apart from anybody else. There was nothing commendable in him to start with, but he comes into this guy named Abraham who was from a faraway country, Ur, and in that country he says, listen, I'm going to have you leave your homeland, go to another place, and I am going to make of you a great nation. Now, why would he do that? Was Abraham deserving of that? No. God, in his grace, sets forward this covenant, this this, uh, unilateral uh, agreement with him, and he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. This is a man who had no children at the time. And as we know the story, God enabled him to have a miraculous child or miraculous conception through his wife. 
and Sarah, and they had a son, and through him comes all these offspring, and here comes, over a long period of time, eventually that nation is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Now, several generations later, after that, dealing with that man, Abraham, we read in the scriptures that God developed that great nation from Abraham's offspring, and the nation was Israel. And Israel received undeserved grace and favor from God, and God revealed himself to this nation, and he revealed himself as Yahweh, which can be translated, I am who I am. That is, I am the self-existent, eternal God, and I am revealing myself to you. And God delivered his nation that had expanded and increased in number and size during a time of tremendous suffering and slavery in Egypt. And God brought them out of Egypt by his mighty arm and made it very clear that he was the one that delivered them from that and that he now owned those as his own people, his own nation, and he was going to set them up as their own uh, nation in their own land. And so he gave them his law so that they would regulate life under his kingship. Now the law revealed the proper way to relate to a holy God like himself and how to love your neighbor as yourself. And in terms of the progress of redemption, Israel lived under the law, which served as her guardian. This nation of Israel lived under this law as a manager that helped those Israelites understand what they needed. They needed desperately a savior. They desperately needed someone who could rescue them from all of the fallout from the fact that they could not keep all of these regulations perfectly. Now, this is part of God's plan. And God was waiting until the time was right for his people. And he was waiting for the time when they would find help for the fact that they needed a righteousness that they could not gain on their own. No amount of law keeping could gain them or gain anyone a righteousness that would make people acceptable before the God who is holy and true. And so many of the Israelites lived under these years in a bondage, bondage to what they created out of this law. They took the law and they viewed it as what they call here in verse 3, elemental things of the world. Elemental is another word for the, like the ABCs. And so they reduced it down to the ABCs of superstition. They kept thinking, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'll be in control of what happens and I'll know my destiny. The problem is that, again, a percentage of all those Israelites, they wrongly concluded that if they perform well, that they therefore could earn God's love, they could earn God's blessing, they could earn God's favor. That was never intent of the law. But nonetheless, that's what many of them believed. And so God went ahead with his plan. He knew that Israel was not at the stage where they needed to be to see the full kingdom unfold. And so therefore, God the Father's plan unfolded little by little in a progressive way. Now, I've been thinking about progress as things unfolded in comparing this situation, the program of God's uh, redemption, with a book I recently read that's fairly old now. It's written about an event that happened in 1996. So for some of you, that seems like ages ago. For some of us, that seems like just yesterday. But anyway, the book is called Into Thin Air. John Krakauer is the author. 
And the book recounts the true life story of this author and his experience in being um, taking on an assignment from a, an outdoor magazine to actually make his way up Mount Everest to the peak of the top of the highest mountain in the world. Now, this book, the plan of the book, is very easy to summarize. The book is not complicated. It just starts with this. It starts with a number of reasons as to why anybody in their mind would ever dream of wanting to climb to a place where there is no air and where it's frigid cold conditions and almost impossible to do. Why these people do that, they go into the history of who all has done it and the different uh, people who accomplished that and all that, you know, whatever. And then they talk about the, the situation that had been going on there. There are groups of people that go up now <clears throat> who are not necessarily mountain climbers. They're people who just want to climb. And they'll pay big bucks for somebody to get them up there just because they love danger. They love adventure. They love living on the edge. So this is the, he sets the groundwork as to what was going on at that time. Then he talks about the step-by-step progress of being a part of such a group. And he goes to the different levels. And he talks about you reach this certain place here. And then you reach another place here. And you reach another place here. And it took them months because they have to acclimate themselves to these terrible conditions. That's a good portion of the book right there. It's just these different stopping points along the way. And then there's a whole several chapters devoted to what happened in that final point from the last camp to where you get from here to the top. And there's all sorts of drama going on in terms of his experience, the experience of other people, and it just goes on and on about unbelievably brutal conditions. People who can't hardly gasp any air, people freezing to death, frostbite. I mean, it's just, reading is like, ah, who in their right mind would do this stuff? But that's the, that becomes the pinnacle of the event. Who survives that? And a number of people die, including the guide that John Krakauer went with. A very experienced, very careful, uh, strategic uh, guy who knew what he was doing. He dies on that climb for various factors. So the, the pinnacle of the book is getting to the top of the mountain. And then, then you have the last chapter, too, that deals with coming down off the mountain. And you get his reflection, his pondering, his working through his own guilt, and some of the factors, I should have helped this person. Why did I survive? Why did other people not survive? And all that processing of those feelings. That's really the book. It, it goes build, 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 builds, hits the top of the peak, and then it's what happened afterwards. There is a progress to the particular story of that. And I want to encourage you to think that way about what happens in the Bible. That God the Father has a plan. He is on a rescue mission. And God the Father has a plan that unfolds progressively. It doesn't happen all at once. It is not something that all of a sudden you you reach the pinnacle of all that he's doing and we know we're all there. It doesn't happen immediately. The summit of God's redemptive program was not reached when God gave the law to Moses and created this nation of Israel. That was not the pinnacle. And that's what Paul is trying to emphasize here in this text, because some people thought that was it. That was the ultimate. That was the pinnacle. The Israelites became enslaved under the law's mastery, because why? They kept breaking that law. They needed new hearts. 
They needed the ability and the change of what's going on inside of them to have a new desire and to have a new nature to enable them to live new lives. Because the more they kept looking at the law, the more they realized, I'll never do that. I can't do that. I realize I fall short in that area. They needed a perfect law keeper who would atone for their failings, who would reconcile them to the holy God who made them. And they needed grace. That's the point, my friend. If you keep thinking that the law is the pinnacle of the Bible, and that's what it's all about, a bunch of rules, you're missing out. That's not the point. You've misunderstood the, the sense in which God reveals in a progressive way his plan of saving people on the basis of grace. According to God, his plan, it is grace that he sends in the person of Jesus Christ. Very interesting verse in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, the grace of God has appeared to all men bringing salvation. It is Jesus that's part of God the Father's plan. So that brings us then to our second point here. God the Son's provision. He provided perfect ransom and righteousness through redemption. Now those are big words. That's a lot of theological concepts there. But let's see if we can follow through on this and understand what's happening. The law that was given to the Israelites that has many regulations involved in it, revealed the shortcomings of everyone who tries to keep it. And the law holds over those Israelites and anyone else, it holds them into bondage because no one has ever kept the law, no one can keep the law perfectly. And this bondage continues and continued on until what? The fullness of time. The fullness of time, which the time came in God's plan, and it was the right moment in terms of all world history, in terms of redemptive history. Everything had been laid in place, and now was the time. Here comes the Savior on the scene. And God the Father sent his eternal Son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh. And as fully God and as fully man, Jesus Christ obligates himself to abide by the law of God. And so Jesus indeed, unlike all those who preceded him, he had mastery over that law. Jesus kept that law flawlessly. And he loved God, his Father, with all of his heart. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And Jesus did this in order to redeem those who were under the weight of the law because of their failure to keep it. Now, how did Jesus do that? There's two ways, two areas of provision that he included, includes in his contribution, his provision of redemption. First of all, Jesus paid the price that lawbreakers owe, and therefore he is able to set at liberty those who trust in him. See, notice the word here he talks about, verse 5. Jesus might redeem those who are under law. Redeem is a word that comes from a very familiar concept they would have known uh, at that time in which a person who, because of financial obligations or because of their being reduced down as a, to the level of a slave, people can somehow get out of that enslavement by paying of a price. We see it even in our t- world today. We've seen in, in the last uh, 10 years numbers of people who were uh, kidnapped 
uh, in Sudan as little boys or girls. They are held against their will as slaves, and people are paying ransoms to those who kidnap them in order to set them free. Well, Jesus does this in a spiritual sense in that he pays a price by his own atoning death on the cross and that his perfect obedience coupled with his atoning death provides us what we desperately need and that is righteousness and we need forgiveness. Righteousness and forgiveness. Because some people assume what? I'm going to find freedom if I can just break all the laws. So some people are living their life determined nobody's going to tell me what to do. I want freedom. And guess what? That leads into bondage. Significant bondage and destruction of heart and soul. On the other hand, there are people who say, well, I'll find freedom by keeping all the rules. And those are the people who try their hardest to become better people and who constantly are trying to to, uh, do the right thing and try harder and harder. But what Jesus came is he says, listen, Jesus says, I am a substitute and I'm in your place and I'm going to gain for you what you would never be able to gain for yourself. I have my own righteousness. I have kept the law and I'm going to pay the debt that you owe because you failed to keep the law. And I did it by laying down my life on the cross. And then by the proof of that was when I rose from the dead, I proved I did pay it. Everything that was necessary. And I find it fascinating to see the redemptive picture in this book I read, Into Thin Air, illustrating what Jesus did in some of the characters of this book. One of the things that John Krakauer describes, who were the key um, uh, characters of the book, which you really don't, you would never imagine when you read it, are these people called Sherpas, S-H-E-R-P-A-S, Sherpas. They are native tribesmen who live on the side of the Himalayan mountains, either in Tibet or Nepal. They are people who are accustomed to living in high altitude. And they are strong and, and, and vital gentlemen, and they are known for their skills in mountain climbing. And so along with any group that was going up to the top of Everest, these Sherpas would come along and they would carry the heavy loads. And they would be making sure that everybody had what they needed in order to make a successful climb. Because some of these people were not climbers at all. They didn't know what they were doing. And so they would carry up with them all sorts of necessary supplies. And when it got to the critical stages in which people were on the verge of freezing to death on that last little section before the top, it's the Sherpas who oftentimes would give their oxygen canisters to others to let them breathe that oxygen because they were accustomed. It could go longer than anyone else because of the way their lungs had been conditioned to this. They gave away their canisters to people to enable them to survive. And then when they were just laying there with no power on their own to do anything, they were going to freeze to death otherwise, they would lift them up and carry them down through the the difficult and and precarious mountain climbs as as they make their way down the hill. It is the Sherpas who oftentimes rescued people who couldn't make it on their own. And that to me is a beautiful image of what Christ does for us. It is Jesus who provides for us access now to God. He breaks all the problems that were, he breaks down all of the barriers that kept us from knowing God and enjoying God. He deals with all of our sin. He deals with all of our offenses and our lack of righteousness. He gives those to us on the basis of grace 
to those who trust in him. And then, as we've said in previous weeks, he goes on to give them, it says here in verse 5, it is Christ, because of his redemption, that gives us the wonderful privilege and status of being sons of God. Not just people who are not guilty, but people who are welcomed into the family of God. Rather than striving to achieve a task of trying to somehow live a good life, somehow earning God's favor, Jesus bestows the honor and blessing of being an heir of God who has full rights and full access to the inheritance of God on the basis of grace. And because of Jesus, the perfect law keeper and the sin substitute, we do not have to earn our inheritance. Jesus gives it to all who trust in him. He gives it freely. He gives it on the basis of grace. It's amazing. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And Jesus is the righteous redeemer. He not only removes those obstacles, as I said, that hindered us from relationship to God, but he bestows upon those who come to him in faith and repent of their sins the blessing and the privilege of being those who are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. And in the redemptive program of God, Jesus elevates people who were filled with shame, filled with guilt, to the position of sonship. That is, we share the same exact inheritance that Jesus himself will enjoy. That means that all the privileges that Jesus deserves because of his obedience are now transferred to us in the gospel of grace. We're adopted by God, granted the full rights of being heirs of eternal glory. Our keeping of the law does not pay the price. Jesus paid the price in full. And now we are what? This is very important, my friends. Don't miss this. If we are those who have come to Christ in faith, relying on what Christ did for us, we're receiving on the basis of faith what Jesus provides to us in his death, in his resurrection, his substitution, his righteousness, on the basis of grace. We are then, my friend, welcomed We are loved, we are reconciled, we are owned by God. We relate to God not as lawbreakers, but as full heirs who have a secure promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And this is the second phase, my friend. This is the pinnacle. This is the amazing part of biblical redemptive history, is that that is a significant part of it. In this phase of redemption, God successfully rescued slaves in sin under the law, and he gathers them, what? Into his family. J.I. Packer calls spiritual adoption the highest privilege the gospel offers. It's not just that you're forgiven. You're forgiven and you're welcomed into family. I have a quote here in your notes that Packer expands on this in his book, Knowing God. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. 
Do you know what that's like? Does that characterize your relationship to God? A generosity? A closeness? Affection? God toward you? You toward God? To be right with God the judge, which is found in justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, that is, in adoption, is greater. Just think, we're no longer relating to God out of fear. We don't relate to God out of duty. We have been bought from slavery and made sons, brought into sonship. Another quote I came across by Philip Ryken, Our ongoing membership in God's family does not depend on our works as if somehow we had to earn our keep. We're in that family because Jesus has bought us, we belong to him, and we are therefore enjoying all the benefits we have because of Christ. Now I wonder how many of us are saying, well, I'm still trying to earn my ransom. I'm still trying to improve myself so God would somehow want to save me. My friend, you misunderstand the gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. Because that kind of living will enslave you, just like it did Israel. Jesus paid it all so that you might be what? Welcomed in his family on the basis of grace. It has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. It has everything to do with Christ and what he's done for you. And if you want to judge, as J.I. Packer says, how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much this person makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as your father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls your worship and your prayers and your whole outlook on life, it means that you do not understand Christianity very well at all. That's a big statement. And for some of us, I think we, we just have gotten the concept of, well, I'm forgiven, but I'm not anywhere close to God on a daily basis. My friend, we're losing sight of adoption. We're redeemed so that you might become sons or heirs of God. That's what Jesus did. That's what we can enjoy. But I, I don't want to stop here, my friend, because guess what? Just like there was progress going up the hill, there is continued progress in, the, in, the, in God's redemptive plan. And this brings us to our third point. This is so important that you understand this. I think this has never been really explained to me in all the years I've been listening to sermons and growing up in the church. Somehow this never seemed to make sense and was never told or my brain didn't absorb it, which is very possible. All right, number three. God the Spirit's presence. God the Spirit's presence. That is, there's adoptive assurance as the goal of redemption. What do you mean by that? Well, again, there's progress of redemption. We're moving forward in this, what God wants to do. So, under the old covenant, there were many elements that God established that were shadows, types of what Jesus would successfully accomplish once he provided them. And then God not only sent a sinless Savior and Redeemer to bring us into right relationship with him and then to make us as children of God. But then his plan included another stage, another step in the progress of redemption. And this includes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within all of those who are children of God. After Jesus ascended to heaven, what did he say? What did happen next? 
Well, he promised before he left, he said in John 14, 18, I'm not going to leave you as my followers orphans. I'm not going to leave you desolate as if you're on your own now. You figure it out. God gave them the gift of his spirit, right? Pentecost. And the spirit was given to those who enjoy the status of being sons and daughters of God. And he was given to them so that they might have full assurance that they are members of the family of God. Not that they be filled with doubt and wonder and, and feel like they're alienated and aloof and not sure I'm going to be able to make it here. They're made, he is given to them so that we might have assurance and calmness of heart and soul. Watch this. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar, if you are a child of God by faith in Christ, you know the struggle we face as believers as we often slip into the, the unfortunate and an unhealthy way of relating to God, even though we are a child of God through Christ, we relate to God through the old system of trying to what? Perform well. Try to do enough. Somehow, oh, I'm not, I'm not living the way I should be living. Oh, no. And so we wonder if we're going to become like that foster kid who wonders whether he's really in the family or out of the family, wondering where he's going to end up next. But may I say to you, God the Spirit takes up residence within every believer, providing to every believer an absolute guarantee that the inheritance secured by Christ will one day be given to every single one of those children. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Look it up. The Spirit's ministry now is to convince us again and again and again that every believer's adoptive status is not dependent upon what we do or what we don't do. It is dependent upon Christ. And that's what the Spirit is trying to tell us. The Spirit is pointing us to Christ. And the Holy Spirit provides comfort and assurance to every son of God and every child of God that we indeed are children of God. The Spirit assures us that we have access to God's presence and that no matter how well or how poorly we may live for Him, we have openness to enjoy our Father and enjoy His love and love Him in return, no matter what. Another aspect of the Holy Spirit's role in the program of redemption is to help God's adoptive children be assured of God's fatherly care and concern. God's fatherly care and concern. I'm convinced that many of us, myself included, the reason we're so anxious is because we have such a poor concept of God's fatherly care and concern. We really don't believe that. We really don't. Not in an experiential level. Otherwise, why would we worry so much? Why would we be filled with so much fear? You see, because we've been redeemed by Jesus, we've been adopted on the basis of grace, the Holy Spirit now is encouraging us to rely on God as our Father in times of need. Now watch this. This is, I've never, again, this is all new to me. I'm looking at some of these insights. Verse 6. Notice the word crying there. God has sent forth his Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The word crying is a strong term. It's not, it's not a a simple little yo, you know, like just to cry out. It indicates a loud cry, a shriek of anguish. It's something you scream when you're really in a bad spot. 
As a matter of fact, if you compare Mark chapter 14, 36, the same Greek word appears in the statement of Jesus, who is in the moments he's addressing his father under the, uh, uh, the shadow of the cross, knowing that he's about to die and undergo that horrendous form of spiritual and physical suffering, his soul, it says, was deeply grieved to the point of death. And it says at that point, he cries out and prays, Abba, Father. He is not saying that when everything was nice and fine and, oh, I feel such close with you. He's crying out because he's facing a huge crisis. Abba, Father. Daddy, Daddy. It's a word of, of endearment. Maybe you got this call one time. I'm thinking about my own kids. My child will remain nameless and anonymous. But one of my children uh, took to camp one summer and drove five hours to this camp one way, got, got this child all set up, everything was put in place, hugged goodbye, assured everything's going to be fine, you have a great time. Uh, you got your friends here, whatever, and so drive five hours home, and then we get to about Wednesday of that week, and you get one of those phone calls, Dad, I gotta come home, I can't do this anymore, Dad, now what did I, what did I say, ah, oh, stick it out, come on. Don't bother me with these crazy you know, needs you have and just hang up the phone. No, I stopped everything I was doing and drove up there and gladly allowed my child to know, I don't mind if you call me. Anytime you have a concern and need, I'm not going to abandon you. That was not heroic on my part. That's just what I do as a fallen father. How much greater... How much greater is God, our Father, and the, the openness we have to call to him for anything? Daddy, Daddy, I need you. There's no need of feeling like you need to be ashamed. Whatever it is you're asking for, just cry out to him in moments of need. Why? Because you're a spiritually adopted child. You belong to God. He bought you. You're forever his. He's concerned for whatever you're concerned about. He's not going to abandon you or forsake you in a moment of crisis. He's there. And the Holy Spirit is given to us as an encouragement to speak out to our heart. If you're in a moment of need, cry out to your Father. He loves you. He'll help you. He will not abandon you. You are his child because of Christ and all he did for you. And so Matthew chapter 6 Jesus says, listen, your father knows whatever you need, even before you ask him. Your father. Jesus keeps trying to help us see, look at God through the gospel as your father and relate to him as one who can have intimate, caring, love, concern, and you can have that kind of relationship with him. I know that's foreign for many of us with our own, our own biological parents, but my friend, don't let that hinder you from what the Spirit wants to teach you as you read and take the word for what it's worth, write at face value. Take it and walk by faith and say, thank you, Lord, you are that way. And relate to him that way. One more final thing. Another aspect of the Spirit's adoptive ministry is to provide a new sense of destiny. A new sense of destiny for the sons and daughters of God. 
I don't have time to unpack all this, but Romans 8 will help you greatly here. There are times, as a child of God, we sometimes falsely conclude, you know, God, if you love me, you would spare me a lot of difficulties in life. Right? You know, sometimes our children think we should always prevent them from having anything difficult in life. That is not, that is not what life is uh, preparing somebody really for true life. And God, in his own wisdom, as he leaves us in a world that is not completely redeemed yet, he has accomplished the, the main battle of that redemption, but it's not completely done. So we are prone to wonder sometimes if we're ever going to see the completion of this redemption. We're living in a world where we keep saying, oh, I wish I didn't have to deal with separation from death or separation through divorce or separation that deals with broken relationships or separation that deals with the fact that my body is no longer able to do what I used to be able to do. According to Romans 8, verses 18 and 19, the Spirit of God points all of God's adoptive children to the final day of the resurrection when our bodies will be set free from the effects of curses of the sin of the, the, the curse of sin. And we're assured that when we suffer with Jesus and when we're suffering for Jesus' sake in this world, we will one day share in his glory. We're not reached a dead end here, my friend. It's not because of what we do well. It's not because of what we avoid that's bad. It's because of Jesus who won the victory over sin in his resurrection from the dead that the Spirit now can come and say to our hearts and assure us, listen, I am interceding for you. And I know the will of God in this situation. And I, as the Spirit, I am praying for you in the middle of a broken world where things are still all screwed up. And you're just yearning and longing for that final day to finally put things the way we want them and long for them to be. That's Romans 8, 26, 27. The Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. Because sometimes you don't even know what to pray, do you? The Spirit's praying for you. Why is he doing that? Because the Spirit of God wants to help you live a hope-filled life. The Spirit of God wants to help assure you of God's love and God's care no matter how dark, no matter how difficult, no matter how disgusting sin and evil in this world may become. Through the Word of God, which the Holy Spirit inspired, the Spirit can assure you again and again that God is committed to completing the work that he has begun in you on the basis of grace. It will always be through grace. He'll see you through to the end on the basis of his grace. My friend, there is progress in God's program of redemption. And there is reason to be hopeful. There is reason to be comforted. There is reason to rejoice. God the Father had a plan. God the Son provided what we desperately needed in adoption. And God the Spirit, man, he can give us assurance and comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that things are not just happening in a haphazard way, but your word reveals to us a wonderful, all-wise, 
amazing plan of redemption, all designed to bring honor and glory and accolades and blessing to you because of your grace. Father, I pray that there's someone here today who has no concept of ever relating to you as a spiritual father who is still hiding in their shame from you or who is trying to find freedom by breaking all the laws that you have ordained. Lord, I pray even today that you would bring them in a humble state of heart and mind to the cross, finding a loving, grace-filled Savior, offering his own payment on their behalf to assure them that they too could be adopted and welcomed into your family, forever family. Father, I pray today that there might be some even among us who this day will bend their knee and humbly seek Christ and trust in him, what he's accomplished on the basis of grace, receiving forgiveness and the status of being a child of God by learning to transfer their trust from themselves and what they do to transferring their trust to Christ and him alone. Father, for those of us who have taken that step, Lord, I pray that your spirit, oh, would you fill us with your spirit. May we know full assurance. May we know a calm assurance of your love, of your care, of your concern for us. May we, Lord, become much more involved in praying to you, opening our hearts to you, enjoying time we spend before your presence. May the Spirit point us to Christ, even in the moments that lie before us as we gather around your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.